Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled but all who humble themselves will be exalted. These indeed are the words of Jesus. Amen. Pharisees and tax collectors, the good guys and the bad guys, those that wear the white hats and those that wear the black hats and the old westerns that we used to watch. We categorize people into two groups. I think for some reason it might be in our very beings that we do this. That somehow we have to have somebody that is worse than us. Of course, we are good people. We do the right things. People may not understand us. But there is this dichotomy, this split between peoples, those that are good and those that are bad, and we encourage that. And so Jesus tells a story. As you remember, last week's story was about prayer, prayer of a persistent widow or a persistent God that's centered in the concept of justice. I pointed out too often we may pray about things that we want, that we cannot handle, that are beyond ourselves. But it gives us an idea of what we talk to God about. The injustices that we see in the communities where we live and how we can help to make those right. Right on that parable, Jesus tells a second. Not about injustice, but a little bit about how we pray, and the effectiveness of the types of prayers we may have. Now, the opening words, if you notice, kind of take away the surprise of the parable. Let me tell you what I mean. Parables have a surprise. They have zingers within them. They are there to catch the one that listens to the parable, expecting one thing, developing and discovering something totally different. Luke gives an introduction. And in the introduction, you already know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is in the story, right? When Jesus told the story... There was no introduction. He just told the story. The people caught 
were caught up in the story. And they made their determination. Yeah, I know who is good, and I know who is bad. Jesus introduced them. There was a Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and one was a tax collector. The Pharisee was one that kept everything right. As pastors, we love Pharisees in the church. Now, they may bug you at times about that you are not doing things exactly appropriate, but they pay tithe, and the church runs. They're there at meetings. They show up to worship. They show up to any other thing that is going on. They support the pathfinders. You know, you name it. Churches run on Pharisees, and that's a good thing. We're looking at a Pharisee, though, that had a problem. The people knew that the tax collector was bad. They knew it from the fact of his occupation. You see, Judah was an occupied territory. They were occupied by the Romans. That image of a kingdom that would come through the lineage of David was nearly obliterated, but yet they stepped coming back and trying to fight their way. And anything that was Roman, they objected to. The tax collectors were probably Jewish people that were hired by the Romans to collect a tax. There was an amount of money that was set on particular areas. They would bid on that area for the privilege of collecting taxes. And then they were free to collect whatever amount they could. They would pay the government the amount that they bid on. Let's say it was a uh, million dollars. And they would go out and collect two million. That they could pocket. But they had sold out to the other side. And so when Jesus said there were two men that went up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee, everybody said, yeah, that's understandable. Uh, they would tend to go to the temple, but uh, there was a tax collector. And I would imagine the response would be in their minds, what in the world was he doing there? Why was he going to the temple? Was he hoping to get some of the temple monies? I don't know. But you had very clearly in the mind of the people that were listening to the story Jesus was telling from Jesus' perspective where he started. There were two men, and they knew who the bad person was and who the good person was. And they knew the outcome of the story. The good person would be praised, and the bad person would be put down. It's a given. You know it. That's the way stories work. But then Jesus began to tell about their prayers. The Pharisee prays, Lord, I am thankful. So it's a prayer of thanksgiving. It says that he is standing up. You know, that was the attitude of prayer in those days. They stood for prayer. They would stand looking up to heaven. 
God is in heaven. I'm going to talk to him. God, let me tell you what I need. They might even raise their hands in prayer. So here we know the Pharisee is in the temple. It is a prayer that he is praying, a prayer of thanksgiving. And then he begins his prayer. You have the text. It was in your bulletin. You're welcome to follow it. I encourage you to mark it. He's standing by himself. I think that's interesting, by the way. He doesn't want anyone by him. Uh, He wants to be alone. No one is good enough to be in my orb. Says, God, I thank you. So far, so good. And then it goes south from there. I thank you that I am not like other people. And if you go through, at least in this translation, there are four eyes. The prayer is only 29 words, and if four of them are about me, oh, this guy is narcissistic. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Then he names them. I'm not a thief. I'm not an evildoer. I am definitely not an adulterer. And he probably was looking around a little bit by then, uh, picking out, yeah, there's, there's the evildoer over that. That person is the thief. And he spies the tax collector by himself, in a corner, far off from anyone. He sees him. And I can imagine him saying, and praise God from whom all blessings flow. I am not like that tax collector over there. Now, I added a few words there, if you notice. But I can assure you that those types of thoughts were in his mind. I thank you that I am not like other people. He lost the idea of creation, that God is the creator of all things, and that as God being creator, he created humans. In a sense, in that sense, God is a father of all humanity, and that makes us brothers and sisters. He did not see other people as his brothers or his sisters. They did not meet his high standards. And then he goes on with his prayer, listing at least a couple of things that he did that seemed important to him. He says, I fast twice a week. You know what the requirement was? One time a year. Uh, Do you think he went a little bit overboard? could be. By Jesus' time, uh, they fast twice, they fast only once a week. Into the second century, as their piety grew, they began fasting twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So when Tuesday come, uh, 
Uh, you can think of the Pharisee out fasting. Now, fasting was just during the day. You know, they would eat a pretty sumptuous meal at night. Uh, and if they ate enough the night before, they were good for the day probably. Now, Christians in the second century that were, had a lot of piety, they also fasted. They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. Kind of made it tough on Sabbath, but uh, that's when they fasted. They didn't want to fast on the same days. But this was to prove that I have a close tie and relationship with God. And here the Hebrew Bible tells us, uh, oh, one time a year is enough on the Day of Atonement. Uh, you can fast then. Celebrate that night, but fast on that particular day. He is saying, looking around at the people that are in the temple with him, I am good. I am great. There is none other like me. And then he says, I tithe on all of my income. Do you see the word all there? That's significant. There were limitations on what you had to tithe on. But he says everything, even the stuff I didn't need to tithe on, I tithed on. And what I think he's expecting is for heavens to open as he's looking up and God to appear before him and said, you are doing well. And I almost imagine him wanting God to reach down with a certificate of accomplishment that he could take and frame and put it on a wall in his house. And everyone would sing with him how great I am. Now, this narcissistic religion is not just a problem with the Pharisees. I can imagine when we get to publicans uh, who are the tax collectors, they can say, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not like that Pharisee who is so conceited and caught up on himself. But I confess my sins to you. I am better. Anytime we do comparisons saying, I'm better than someone else, we are stepping outside of what God has called us to be. We are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We support each other with our faults and our good points. We support each other as we are in the presence of our God. And our God comes and worships with us. And we with him as a collection of God's people, we come together in this way. No one of us is better than anyone else. No one of us has a control on God on the basis of what we do. It is, as I said last week, God has called us to do two things and a third. To love God, to love people, and to be kind. 
with the context of the Sabbath, and I don't know how we have missed this as Adventists over all the years. As I said last week, Sabbath as a bridge between loving God in the commandments, the first three, and loving people, the last six, that we come together as God's people and we gather together because we are God's community. And no one is forbidden from that time, neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. As you look carefully as the commandment is presented, all people can stand on that bridge together and celebrate the greatness of God, the God who has created us and the God who has redeemed us. And so there's this despicable character in the temple. He's afar off in the corner. The people that are hearing the story clearly don't like him. They know he's the one that's going to get hit in the parable. At least in their thinking, he better get it. He deserves it. And he also prays. And he doesn't look up. He looks down. I want you to notice the significance of it. What do you do when you pray now? Do you bow your heads? This is where it came from. That we are humbled before God. He is standing. He is not prostrate on the ground. He is not kneeling. He is leaning over. It says he pounds his chest. I read that women in this period pounded their chest. Men would only pound their chest like this if it was a time of great distress that they were feeling. And then he prays. Six words in the Greek. It took the Pharisee 29's word, words to say how great I am. And here... This tax collector pounds his chest, leaning over, and he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What amazing, amazing words. The recognition that we are sinners. Some sins, I guess, are nicer than others. We like them better. We like to talk about ourselves and what God has done. We have the list of sins that the Pharisee put out, that I am not a thief, an evildoer, an adulterer, or a tax collector. These are bad things. But not associating with all of God's people is also bad. And not only did God come to save 
evildoers and thieves, adulterers and tax collectors. He came to save Pharisees like you and me. And anything that we do and that we look for, that we think puts us in line to gain God's approval, underscores the reality that I am a sinner. And that the only way I can be forgiven is by the grace of God. There is absolutely no other way. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Should be on all of our lips. And in praying that prayer, I like to say this is the one prayer that you don't have to ask if it is your will. You know, I need a parking place in downtown Orange today. Uh, if it is your will, God, could you make one available for me? We even do that trite type of thing uh, that we pray with, that we do with prayer. But when I pray, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, I don't say, if it is your will, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is God's will, and God will fulfill his will. He will do this. You and I stand right with God because Jesus' mercy, God's mercy, covers us. And now there is the zinger in the story. Those that are listening to the story are confused. They hear these two different prayers, and Jesus says, I tell you, <clears throat> you notice, you're going to listen to this. This is what's important to you. Underline this is what those introductory words give us. This man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other. And if these people were sitting on seats around listening to Jesus, I'm sure half of them fell off of their seats. Tax collectors could not be justified. It was just, just impossible. That would not happen. Why would God turn against the kingdom of Israel, the house of Judah, the family of David, and give approval to someone who is sold out to the other side. But he went home justified. Justified is interesting. It's a theological concept. It means that God will look at me, I am justified, and see me truly as I am, and say, Ernie Furness is a righteous person. I know that's uh, not true. I know who I am. And if I tell you I'm righteous, don't believe me for a moment. But I want you to know my God is righteous. And God gives that to me. I don't do anything for it. I don't pay tithe. I don't fast and pray. I don't help with the church. I don't do any of these things in the community to gain God's favor. God's favor, God's justification of me can only be a gift. 
doesn't mean I shouldn't do anything because as a part of the family, I have family responsibilities. But as far as my relationship is with God, that is a gift. I know who I am, but God says, Ernie, you're righteous. And that's good, good news. Let me put it another way. Back a few chapters, before I, I came here, there's, Luke was dealing with a lawyer, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, a lawyer who came to him and asked a, a dumb question, a wrong question. You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the wrong question part is do. And he wasn't about to do what needed to be done anyway to love neighbor because he needed some clarification on that. Uh, Jesus said, tell us what it is. He says, love God and love neighbor. Love God and love people. It's in the story of the Samaritan that follows that we get the idea that we're also to be kind. Oh, what a wonderful church churches would be if members were kind to each other. You know what I'm saying? It's sometimes hard to be kind, especially when that other person isn't doing things quite as we would want them to do it. At least as my sanctification has allowed me to understand it. Love people, love God, be kind. So simple. But in the question is the word inherit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Inherit isn't a bad word in the thinking of God's salvation of people. If I needed to inherit something, uh, there first of all there must be something to be inherited, right? If there's nothing there, there's nothing to inherit. So there needs to be something there to inherit. Secondly, somebody has to die. And third, I would need to be named to the will, on the will. I think it works in this case here, the idea of inheriting. Because there is something greater than me that I cannot obtain. And someone did die. Someone who was righteous, who was actually resurrected from the dead. And in that resurrection, we know that God approved of everything that Jesus Christ did. Otherwise, he would still be in that grave in Palestine. Jesus died, our loving, our righteous Savior. And we have come to the point to inherit. And the will is read. And what you and I inherit is Christ's righteousness. Do you follow that? It is so simple, friends. I don't know why we make Christianity so difficult. But it is simple. The door of the kingdom is opened wide to every one of us. So he goes home justified. He inherits eternal life. And then we get a postlude. The last few lines uh, are probably the punchline of the story. They come from somewhere else. You can read them in uh, 
Matthew 23, I think it's verse 12. Uh, in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus is talking again to Pharisees. And he ends with this particular line there too. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. You see the poetry in there? Just in the words, I can't help but tell you about this. You have exalt, humbled, humbled, exalt. You have uh, an A with exalt, a B with humbled, another B with humbled, and then an A with exalted. This is the way they remembered what Jesus was saying. It was in a form of poetry. The writers put it this way so we could carry it and understand it from place to place. But here is the saying of Jesus that Luke puts on at this particular point, showing the great reversal. If you think you're so great, you're going to be humbled. And if you think you don't even deserve what God has, you will be exalted. It is a great reversal of things. What you see is not necessarily the reality. Because what we deserve, we do not get. Because we are named in a will. And the gift that is available to us is Christ's righteousness. And it is given to us. And with that, we stand right with God. The grace of Jesus is always amazing grace.